Hi, hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT show, The Nation Talks. I'm John Drummond, and I'm your host, your host for the 60 exciting minutes. And there will be exciting minutes. These are, this is going to be a really, really good show. Uh, tell all your friends about this. Tell them to watch the recording afterwards if they're not able to join us live tonight, because you're really going to enjoy this. Uh, but let me just say it's been another great day for British democracy. Hard on the news that Luke Graham, once of this parish, because I'm speaking to you from the, the sunny borough of uh, Kinross, uh, which is part of the Oakland and South Berkshire constituency, where he was a local MP, uh, has been, you know, he was chucked out from the uh, so-called union unit uh, formed to fight independence. Now we learn that his successor has resigned. Maybe that's another polite way of saying fired. Uh, but it does seem to me that there's not much unison in the union unit. Thanks for joining us this evening. We have yet another great guest, and I'm really excited that she's able to join us this evening. Tonight, the TNT show welcomes Maria Joao Kay. Now, we'll be talking about Spain and Portugal and how that might apply or not to the relationship between England and Scotland. We'll be talking about Burns. Uh, we'll be talking about Port. And we'll be talking about Scottish independence. And along the way, we might be talking about John Drummond, not this John Drummond, a much more important John Drummond. And we'll be taking your questions. So TNT stands for The Nation Talks. So in many respects, this is your show. Get your questions in, comments. We'll try and answer as many as we can. Now to our guest. Tonight, The Nation Talks to Joao Kay. Joao, how are you coping with the pandemic? Hello, good evening, and thank you for having me on the show. I'm coping as well as can be expected, I suppose. Um, my mother is in Portugal, but uh, she's in a care home, and I wouldn't be able to see her anyway if I was there. Last time I saw her was through a glass panel, oh, so but I, I miss her. My children, apart from one of them, are um, abroad, one in Brussels, one in Zurich in Switzerland, but they're fine. So all is well. And the rest of the family in Portugal, too. And uh, as for lockdown, um, I try and exercise with uh, my husband, Billy. Once a day, we, we go for walks and uh, try and entertain ourselves and keep happy because it's, it's for the good of humanity. Although I feel for everyone affected by this. Yeah. How do you keep in touch with the family? Do you use Zoom? Do you FaceTime, something like this? Uh, WhatsApp. A lot. Okay. Even, uh, with the care home, the, you, you need to book 24 hours in advance, but you can have WhatsApp phone calls uh, so I can see mum and talk to her. Um, I do that uh, a few times a week and I speak to her every day anyway. And uh, with the rest of the family as well, WhatsApp and uh, video. We do not normally tend to have, well, not, not with my children. With my children, we do have like FaceTime general conversations. Yeah. Yeah. With uncles and aunts and cousins, it's more a WhatsApp one-to-one -one yeah. or two of them. My uncles and aunts, of course, are all in their 80s and 90s, but fortunately they can use WhatsApp, which is good. really good. <laughs> you, have, you have to ask yourself, what would we have done without technology? 
I know it's absolutely wonderful that that the technology exists and has helped us. I mean, it, it's actually it's been one of the first times I thought of the twenty first century as a wonderful century. In in many yeah. ways, it is yeah. as far as science and technology is concerned. And now during the pandemic, it's uh, it's really revealed itself to be wonderful because. Yeah. Even when I, my role as a Portuguese tutor at um, the Institute for Further Education at the University of St Andrews, we have we have all our classes on Zoom. So now I have students from the United States, from England, etc. Couldn't join before. <laughs> so there you are. It's been a good thing. How does it How does it work when you're trying to teach language Portuguese to to folks who? Uh, all over the place. Absolutely fine. I mean, uh, we use Teams at St Andrews. Oh, so, right. I mean, you just have to make sure you have all the materials and that you um, have to uh, make them accessible to the students, the exercises, homework, everything, like if you were in class. And to start with, I thought it was going to be incredibly difficult, but or that the bond with the students will be weaker, but it's not. It's actually, it, it's been really good. Once you learn the technology, I, I find it excellent. I was asking you about growing up in Portugal. Uh, which part of Portugal were you born in and what was your family life like there? Yes, well, I, I come from uh, central northern Portugal, near the border with Spain. It's an area called Serra, which means mountain. Oh. Serra da Estrela, star mountain. And it's a 6,000 feet mountain. And... Um, it's a ski resort in the winter. <laughs> Nobody thinks of Portugal that way. We, we all learn to ski. Um, and um, we, um, uh, there are several towns, villages. It's, it's a beautiful area. It's very like Scotland, actually. Just we have four defined seasons. Right. Um, and uh, we, um, it's an industrial area. And uh, my father's family comes from this area. So I was brought up there. And uh, they have been connected to the textile industries for uh, since the 18th century, really. Oh my. Um, yes, a long time in one way or another. But as industrialists, just since the um, early 20th century. And but what sort of textiles were, were they making? Textiles. Um, well, it was um, material for suits, okay. ladies' suits, men's suits, especially. I think my grandfather's uh, company specialized in that um but the family's been connected with that for for many many years no longer no longer yeah. my father's generation um no one was interested in continuing um so that that disappeared but that that was my family's background there yeah. so uh, my father was uh, was a doctor uh, oh. so in the 50s people started having uh professions um and uh, also, um, we have, I think, uh, a Jewish connection because um, the rabbi, the, the, it was a Jewish area. Jewish Jews were sent there um, during the Inquisition um, and they were given land. So my, my grandmother's family, for instance, was given a certain amount of land in an area because of that. Oh, right. And my maternal grandmother, this is all to do with my, my father. And uh, the rabbi visited him at the hospital in the early 2000s uh, from the town of Belmont, which is still a Jewish town in, in Portugal, something else nobody knows about. And uh, he said that uh, our ancestors had actually been sent to Cuvillan, to, to our town, um, 
via uh, the Portuguese uh, Colbert, which was the Marquis of Pombal, who kind of industrialized Portugal. Yeah. Um, so since then, since the 1750s, we've been involved in the industry. So I, I had a, a very pleasant life, um, very sort of upstairs, downstairs <laughs> style. Um, but I was kept in touch with the reality um, by my father, who was a doctor and who saw the people and the suffering of the people. Yeah. So growing up, I wasn't aware of it so much myself. Um, but I, I felt, you know, after the revolution in 74, uh, the Carnation Revolution, when Portugal overthrew uh, the fascist regime, um, I felt that I had over the years seen a lot of good examples from my father and, and come out of the bubble that we all lived in because we had such a privileged existence yeah. that uh, we could close our eyes to what, what was going on around us. Yeah, and, and did, did you, when you were growing up, did, did you feel you were terribly privileged? I mean, or did you feel that, uh, well, okay, we have a nice lifestyle, but uh, maybe Portugal was a relatively poor country and maybe that's what made the, the gap so great, perhaps? Yes, I was. I, I was aware of the poverty, but in the periphery. You see, when you when you come from that sort of background, and I came from that on both sides, and my mothers as well, they were also merchants and they'd yeah. been there for a long time, Lisbon. Um, and, and my maternal grandmother, Nazare, and she was a great entrepreneur. She was an amazing woman. Um, but you are aware, but you're not. You yeah. become so comfortable with what's around you that you, you, know, you, you pass by uh, what is happening around you and, mm. and are not and are not connected to the reality. And I, you know, my father, for instance, I discovered recently um, uh, during the fascist years, used to go and treat uh, factory workers. This was during the night. I discovered this um, when I was in Portugal last, you know, a few months ago and we were mm. still allowed to go. Um, I was having a meeting with my lawyer and somebody else and somebody, other person that was there said, I remember your father coming out of the house at 5 a.m. to go and treat factory workers, the secret police had tortured. Oh. So he, he, dad, who had a very privileged existence himself, I'm so proud of him because he did yeah. loads of things like this, which I only discovered afterwards. And, and then when the, the revolution happened, he tried to instill in me um, an awareness of what was going on because by then we could speak, we could say anything we wanted and that wasn't allowed before then. Yeah. It, you, know, you could be whisked away in the night even if you were uh, from a um, uh, family that uh, wouldn't be involved in anything. It was yeah. enough for someone to say that you were and you could be taken away too. Yeah. So my father was was very brave and, and there was nobody else like him really doing things like that at the time in in, uh, in our area that, uh, that I know of. Yeah. And um, that was one of the things I think that um, I find different with uh, uh, the nationalism that we had in Portugal, where we were told, you know, Portugal is great, Angola is ours, uh, we are a great nation, 
we are alone in our pride, but we have a great past. We were wonderful. We can go back there again. Um, and it's, it was an exclusive nationalism. We were alone, but we had a lot of pride in that, the fact that we were. And uh, here, the this nationalism in Scotland, this movement for independence is the opposite. It's an inclusive civic nationalism that I found very attractive from the beginning yeah. because of that, because of the contrast with what I had seen and had experienced. I mean, 74, I was 17. So I was old enough to know the, the difference and to remember. Do you think that uh, the Carnation Revolution in, uh, in 74 had an impact on uh, Spain, the neighbouring country? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, it was, it was one of the... Um, times in European history where a much smaller country had an enormous influence in the life of its bigger neighbor. And it was to the good of all of us because in, um, in 74, when the Carnation Revolution happened, uh, the, the military, the army, the Navy and the Air Force all got together to overthrow the regime because we were running a 14-year-old war in Angola, Mozambique, Guinea, etc. And the country just didn't have the resources. And everybody knew this. And this had been planned for a year. And the head of the movement was this General Spinola, and um, who didn't actually envisage what was going to happen once he set this in, 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 in motion, I think. But all of a sudden, this happened. The regime was overthrown. And um, Franco next door uh, realized that he had to do something to try and democratize Spain. And, and there was a huge interest in Spain to what was happening. To start with, in Portugal, it was nothing terribly bad happened. Some things, yes, because it was a revolution. Um, and for a moment, it was almost lawless, you know, between 74 and 75. It was, those were dark times. I mean, uh, my family and I migrated to Madrid for a while. <laughs> it's the only time I lived in Spain um, because things were, were tough in, in, in Portugal. You weren't, you know, uh, uh, you, it wasn't dangerous ever. I never felt in danger, but strange things could happen. Well, so the Spanish right saw all this happening in Portugal and that this, this was irreversible. Uh, in 1975, we had uh, free elections for the first time and we elected the government. I mean, we weren't allowed to vote. Nobody could vote freely. It was the first time people were allowed to vote since 1928. Amazing. So, I mean, there were queues everywhere of people voting. Um, and it was an extraordinary emotive experience for all social classes. And that's another thing of the Portuguese revolution. Everybody joined in. There was a tiny, tiny minority that couldn't let go of the privileges, but the vast majority did, and, and, and thus to this day. Um, so then Spain, uh, or the, the government in Spain, realized they couldn't stop this movement. So they slowly started democratizing Spain. They were the first government to recognize, actually, the revolutionary government in, in 74. Uh, and they, a lot of ambassadorial contact started then. And uh, eventually, um, Franco proposed some reforms to Juan Carlos, the king. 
Um, and Juan Carlos took them a lot further because he was a Democrat. And um, there were some attempted coups, one in Portugal um, in 75 that was plotted in Spain where the Spanish ripened didn't work, and one in Spain as well. But on, on the whole, the two countries kind of opened up. And so Portugal overthrowing the fascist regime helped Spain do exactly the same thing. It was inevitable. Isn't that and, interesting? That, that's yes. fascinating. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> tell us a little bit more about uh, your sense of the relationship between Spain and Portugal and how that might uh, connect with the relationship between England and Scotland. Well, uh, until 1974, I think, although I had Spanish, my friend, my, I come from a town near the border. You know, this area, Serra de Estrela, is the closest place is Ciudad Rodrigo, you know. Uh, sometimes my grandmother and I would go to the supermarket to Ciudad Rodrigo. It was that kind, of, that kind of thing. So we had Spanish friends, and we had friends who had married uh, Spanish ladies. So because of that, there was some kind of. We had Spanish TV at home as well since the end of the sixties. I speak fluent Spanish because of that. Um, but it, that was a rare thing in Portugal. And, and in Spain too. We were completely ignorant about each other. We really were. It was all stereotypes, mostly disagreeable. I won't go into them here, both sides. And, uh, uh, but when we were together, if the Spanish came to Portugal, you know, to play in the casinos on the west coast of Portugal or to Serra de Estrela to ski, if they left Andorra and came over to our side, it was, you know, we got on so well because basically we have so much in common. So, um, once uh, the revolution happened and once the democratization of the Iberian Peninsula happened, um, we all started getting on much better with each other. And also with school, we stopped learning. We, we, st we still learned about who we were from the very beginning, from the you know, Paleolithic to the invasion of the Visigoths or whatever. We knew everything. But... Um, but we, we now knew a lot more about each other because the two governments spoke to each other, because we were friends, um, because there was a lot of communication. Then we joined the EU at the same time, um, I think 1983, um, and that led to even more cooperation. And um, I would say um, nowadays, uh, it's a totally friendly feeling. I mean, I love them. They're my brothers. So here we have a so here we have a situation where there are two sovereign states, Spain and Portugal, uh, but because of all the treaties between the two of them, there's trade between the two of them, the, the people exchange, uh, you know, a lot of people would think, gracious, that, that's probably what we want for Scotland, is to have yes. that sort of relationship. It's a, it's a grown-up relationship. It, it still allows both states to do their own thing, uh, and I'm sure Portuguese uh, uh, situations, I mean, the government in Portugal will respond to situations in Portugal uh, in order to meet the needs of the Portuguese people and likewise in Spain. So it, it, it will strike a lot of people listening and watching. Heavens, that's what you would like for here. That sort of growing up relationship with each being sovereign, but there, there being cooperation between the two. Can we just go back a wee bit further, though, if you don't mind? Uh, because uh, we talked earlier about Portugal being a relatively poor country. Yes. But to put it in context here, there was a time when Portugal and Spain pretty much 
ran the world. I mean, they governed the whole world. Uh, and, and I think it was the Pope who got the two countries together to say, like, you can take one side of the world, one hemisphere, and you guys can have the other hemisphere. Yes. Uh, that happened in the 15th century, uh, after in Portugal and Spain had both uh, discovered a lot of continents and other lands, and both had empires by then. And uh, but there's in South America, there were a lot of problems because literally we had one half of South America, they had the other half, and there, there were a lot of incursions between one and the other. So was fighting was going on. And that was one of the main reasons for this treaty called the Treaty of Tordesillas, because it was in this town of Tordesillas in Spain. The, the, the Portuguese king went there. Um, and with the blessing of the Pope, they divided the world in, uh, in two because they, they already both knew uh, that which side they, were, they wanted. And the Portuguese king wanted a certain size because this was uh, 1492. And the Portuguese king knew that we had in our sights uh, India. We knew India was there. We thought that um, there was something there very special and that's where we wanted to go. Um, that's one of the reasons that when Columbus came first to the Portuguese king to ask for money for his expedition um, uh, to the Americas, supposedly, uh, he wasn't funded because there wasn't enough money to fund him and Vasco da Gama, our own navigator, who had plans to go to the other side. So uh, that's, that's what happened. They, they, they both chose what was convenient to them and... Uh, and it was to stop the problems in, in South America. It's incredible. But we were two world potencies, really. We run the world at the time, you know, very wealthy. And, um, and, and you know, Brazil, um, uh, which we discovered later in 1500, we already knew it was going to be there and that we could get it. So, so that, that explains to uh, people who are watching and listening why uh, Brazilians speak Portuguese and not Spanish. Yes, yes, it's because that half of South America was for us. <laughs> we got there first. So here we have two countries, Portugal and Spain, who have managed to rub along together, even to the extent of dividing up the world at one time. Uh, both have matured, progressed onwards. Uh, they're both completely independent countries. They can do their own thing. Uh, uh, but yet they cooperate. So it, it does sound like a very good model. And I think one perhaps shining example of how things are different despite this cooperation, I think is the drug policy in Portugal. That's quite different to that in Spain, isn't it? And elsewhere for that matter. Uh, yes, I think so. Well, oh, Portugal was considered, I suppose still, I don't know, but um, quite progressive because it had, I can't remember the technical name in Portuguese, but it, it's um, rooms where you can, uh, addicts can inject themselves or they can be injected um, and uh, in safety. Um, so yeah. it started with that, with some of the areas around Lisbon where the problems were very serious. And then it spread throughout the country. And, um, and there was a certain level of, of drug tolerance like the legalization of cannabis. And, uh, and you know, the government was progressive 
in that respect. And it did a lot of good things. And the drug problem has been reduced enormously. Yeah. It's not, I mean, infinite, I, but you know, it's, it's minimum compared to what it was. Yeah. Well, it's a good example of, you know, again, the two nations which are conjoined, they're, they're contiguous, they, you know, there's a border, but they're part of the Iberian Peninsula. Yes, uh, they're all Iberians yeah, really. Yeah, two separate, two separate administrations. And one administration chose to do something quite progressive in terms of drugs because that's the way they defined their problem and they addressed it the way they wanted to address it. Yes. Spain has presumably gone down a different course uh, and that's in line with the, the, presumably the wishes of the people in Spain. So yes. it's fascinating that there is this connection between the two. But there's been connections between Scotland and Portugal for a long time. Yes. Tell, tell us yes. about this. Tell us about this other John Drummond that you came across. Oh yes. Well, um, I, I first came across it in, in some books in uh, at the home of my paternal grandparents, the ones who uh, come from the area I was brought up in and that I've described. And um, it said that uh, João, uh, John Drummond of Stormhall, um, had married uh, Branca Afonso. The Couvillain, which is our city, we come from there, um, in uh, 14, I think it, when she was 14. Uh, and uh, she went with him to the island of Madeira. He was one of the first migrant ships to Madeira, uh, John Drummond. He was known as João Scorcio. And uh, to this day in Madeira, there's lots of families called either Scorcio or Drummond. Uh, and he was known as John the Scot. And, and um, John Drummond, so married this very, very distant uh, relation of my paternal grandmother. And, uh, you know, 600 years later, I inherited a property from my grandmother. And I, I take my Scottish husband there on holiday. And, and the, the lands originally um, were uh, from the Afonso family. <laughs> So it's quite extraordinary. It's Faye, as Billy says. <laughs> yeah, it's it's extraordinary. And, yes. and tell us tell us about uh, Carlos Drummondi, the Brazilian poet. Ah, Carlos Drummond Andrade. He's one of the great Brazilian poets, famous all over the world. And there are many translations of his uh, of his work. And uh, there is a statue of him actually in uh, Rio de Janeiro. Um, I think it's in Ipanema. It's either Ipanema or Leblanc, but I think it's in Ipanema, uh, near the beach, where he's sitting down thinking. So he is a famous Drummond. Well, that, you know, that's, that fascinates me in particular, apart from the, the, yes. the name and all that good yes, stuff. Yes, yes. No, it, it, it's an incredible story. And then uh, Billy found more about it when he went to Madeira, uh, yeah, about this Drummond and, and Branga Afonso, my very distant relation. So there you are. <laughs> You know, I've been to Epanema and no one ever told me there was a callous dog. <laughs> yes, yes. He is an extraordinary poet and I, he, he transmits, I mean, it's, he's a universal poet. But of course, he transmits the Brazilian soul. But there are, there are many books and translations. And I think there are some books with dual translations. So, oh. the, yes. Tell us, moving on a little bit now, uh, you're obviously enthusiastic about Scottish independence. Yes. Why? Well, um, when I when well, I've already told you why um, I, I consider the independence movement here an attractive one because of its inclusivity. And, you know, uh, 
it's a country that wants to run itself. It's a natural um, ambition to have. It has nothing to do with excluding others or isolating itself from anything. So find that attractive, always did. Um, but uh, my other um, interest in it is um, the cultural aspect as well. The fact that um, when I came here the first time, actually, I, I, I came to study at the Scottish University's uh, summer school in 1978. And uh, I was about 20, 21, can't remember. And I um, arrived here and I got a taxi to, to the halls of residence, which is in Newington in Edinburgh. And I was late and I was so worried that I wasn't gonna make the reception. Uh, my plane from Lisbon was late. And uh, the taxi driver was going, you know, as fast as he could, he knew I wanted to get to this reception. And he asked me, so why are you here? So I explained I was here to study uh, English literature, English Victorian literature at Edinburgh University. And uh, he said, oh, but while you're here, you have to study some Scottish literature. And he proceeded to recite for me all poems of Robert Burns to show me his culture and his people and, and where I was. So, you know, there I was driving from the airport into Edinburgh, off to Newington, um, to in, in hearing this as I went along. It was an extraordinary experience. And I had never come across, uh, it, it was so different from the, any conversation with any taxi driver in Lisbon, Madrid, Paris, anywhere I've ever been. <laughs> So I realized I was in a quite a special place. And then wonders did not cease because so I was with this taxi driver. It was wonderful. And uh, I had this experience. And then weeks later, uh, one of the international students uh, as well, like me, came down, you know, at breakfast with this letter in a red rose and had been left by the, the young lady who very kindly did our rooms for us. And she had left this note and the red rose, and he, he was very good looking, just to tell him how much she cared for him. Now, we were all so astonished. It was first time ever that anything like that had happened to us in our, in our um, uh, my, it was my love is like a red, red rose, of course. So it was, it was the first time that ever happened to us anywhere. And our, our little, uh, um, bourgeois world exploded at that moment, we realized we were in a very special place. So that attracted me to Scotland and I started getting more and more interested in the culture and the people. Um, and um, I mean, I knew about your incredible achievements with the enlightenment. So it's one of the reasons I wanted to come here. Uh, all the things you had done for the world. My father's greatest hero, well, two of his greatest heroes, one was Dutch. But the other one was Fleming here in um, in in Scotland. Oh, uh, yes, yes, because he was an anesthetist, so he he um, very much that was one of his heroes. One of the things he told me, "Ah, oh, you're going to the land of of uh, Fleming, so that's very special. I hope I can visit." Uh, so I already had the background of your extraordinary achievements as such a small nation, um, but getting to know the people and what the people were like, that was even more interesting. 
And also, you know, there was so very little told to us about Scotland in those days. You know, we came here. We had no idea of the Scots language. Nobody told us. I got on the bus and I wanted to pay my fare. And the bus driver told me it's 30 pence. And I was just looking at him and I couldn't understand. And he was slightly annoyed at me because he wanted to move on the bus. And, and this was my second day here or something. And this lady sitting beside me told me, listen, my dear, it's 30 pence. Give me that. So I gave him the 30 pence. But I was so annoyed that nobody had told me that I should do some research and find out. I decided to look into that as well and find out more about Scotland. And the more I found out, the more I think that you have so much to offer and that so much is that being camouflaged. Um, and then of course I met my husband, Billy. So through him, I got access to the culture. So although I was an outsider, there was lots I could learn about it. And I was very interested in one thing, for instance, to connect it with the taxi driver and that experience I had and then talking to other people. Uh, it was the fact that you were such a democratized nation. You know, your sense of the unjust, of the unfair, your sense of equality. You hated airs and graces. Well, airs and graces were quite a feature <laughs> of our life in Europe, most of us, you know. And uh, I could see there was a great sense of equalitarianism here. And also the fact that so many of you knew um, so much that people of the same social standard in other countries in Vidu would not know. And I've been to a few for the reasons I've told you. So um, that, that was another thing that made me see that these people have so much to offer. They are quite extraordinary. And then I realized by being given the book, The Democratic Intellect, I, I realized where it all had come from and yeah. how lucky you have been that unlike most of Europe, not all, but the vast majority of Europe, you have been taught to read and write in these parish schools of John Knox. Yeah. Or, and, and you were such a developed people. I mean, your immigration uh, all over the place has been an immigration of a certain level. You've achieved places of command and of management while many others um, didn't because they were poor and they uh, as well, but they were also uncultured. Yep. So uh, I, I realized that Scotland had much to offer. It was a very, very interesting people and it was almost camouflaged. And then I found as I stayed on that there were these two types of, of people here. There were those who were just you were brave enough to be just Scottish, like Billy, for instance. He had no desire to be anything else, but he wasn't remotely anti-English or anti-anything. Like I've never been anti-Spanish, and I don't know anyone who is. Um, so it had nothing to do with that. It was the fact that he was proud of being Scottish. He knew about his culture, and he had been eradicated from most of the people here. They, they, because they didn't know who they were without being too patronizing, mm -hmm. um, they, they couldn't, they had to have another identity. And, and, and their other identity was, was sort of camouflaged. And, and some of them, it's still there, but it, what, it's camouflaged. What would you say to people who say, well, this all sounds terribly charming and you're a very charming person, but the reality is, 
that if independence proceeds, uh, it will mean breaking up families, it will mean borders, it will mean all sorts of nastiness. Uh, the way they sometimes put it to me is they say, well, Brexit was bad, but oh my, Scottish independence will be many times worse. What, what's your reaction to that? Well, my reaction to that is, uh, at the moment, uh, at the moment, there is no economic reason for Scotland to be in this union. I mean, you are getting told things like, uh, in 10 years' time, like a government minister said 10 days ago, you will see the benefits of Brexit, for instance. Meantime, lots of your industries are collapsing around you and th there will be more to come. Um, your ties with your European neighbours, your economic ties, if you don't want any sentimentality, uh, are, are also being undermined. And um, also, um, I mean, I can understand, for instance, the people who say, oh, it caused me enormous pain, and I have total respect for that. If I was to be taken away from this, it's all my family has known. And um, I understand that. I mean, I can imagine if my family had been through the centuries connected to lots of people in Spain, um, how would we feel about that? But it, it still does not convince me, will not convince me ever, not, I hope, the vast majority of people in Scotland uh, in the 21st century and even before this, that being run, being government governed, having your resources used by, from somewhere else can be a good thing for you, for your, for your nation, for who you are, because that's very important to have a cultural identity, a cultural identity that you respect and that you yeah. know about. And uh, it's also important to um, make sure that what you do is for the good of your people, but it can also, also help others. Because for instance, I remember uh, colleagues of mine telling me, oh, I can never vote for the SNP or have anything to do with independence because the poor little children in Newcastle and, and, and in Birmingham or Manchester, we can't abandon them. And I would say, but you're not abandoning them. If you vote for a change in Scotland, and for democratic reform, and for you um, leaving, living in a democracy, you can be a beacon of democracy in England. I firmly believe that just like Portugal in 74, by having the courage to overthrow the fascist regime of Salazar, actually at the time it was Caetano, uh, and influencing what happened in Spain afterwards, it would be the same in Scotland. If you decide you are going to stop the poverty of the children in Glasgow, you are going to stop the poverty, or you have a very good chance of stopping the poverty of the children in Newcastle, because it, it is bound to have uh, an impact uh, and I, I can't think of it as a selfish thing. Oh, it's only going to be good for people here in Scotland. No, I admire the Scots tremendously, but I'm also quite an Anglophile. And I, I know that democratic and political reform will help both countries, definitely. I have no doubts 
about that. We, uh, we well, have, the, yes. I just, I just wanted to introduce a few comments because people have been uh, letting us know what they feel about what you've been saying. Yes. Uh, Mushet Thomas says, uh, it's great to see people born elsewhere who just love our country like their own. Uh, I, I think that sounds charming. And, uh, oh, Mary Malloy is asking, uh, does Joao think that Scotland could manage financially as an independent state? Well, uh, I think Scotland would do very well as an independent state. I tell you, I wish, <laughs> I wish that Portugal had a bit of your resources. It would have been wonderful. Um, I mean, you are a producer of, of so many things that humanity needs and you have them in abundance. You are a wealthy country full of resources and you can benefit not just yourselves, but as I say, I firmly believe you can benefit others. And um, things like uh, the Jairs figures and other things do not impress me. I, you know, and it's just not because I am, because I am an admirer of Professor Murphy, um, or yes, Professor Murphy. It's, it's, it's not just that. It's also because they make no sense. And that's one of the problems, that everything is, is mixed up in such a way that it makes it all really like a fairy story. Um, I mean, you have this thing that came up in 2019-20 that, you know, we all here spend way above our limit. We're charity cases. We have £1,633, something like that. I mean, I was so annoyed I even memorized the number because I live here and I don't like to hear something like that. I know it's not true. Um, so all that would disappear. Uh, Scotland, for instance, has no borrowing powers. So anything that's borrowed is dumped on Scotland. Uh, Scotland has resources, wealth, intelligence, everything that can uh, enable it to be a nation like any other nation. And that's another thing I like about Scotland. Nobody's here is, nobody here is saying, like we have in Salazar days, oh, we are so great, we are exceptional. We are wonderful. We are better than everybody else. What a great country. What a great history. No, you know you have a great history. Like we Portuguese know we have a great history. But you're not bombastically going about saying you're amazing and you're going to manage so well on your own. No, you're saying just we are amazing enough. We are as good as anybody else and we are wealthy. I mean, people... Countries all over the world have managed independence successfully with a third of your resources. So um, there is no reason whatsoever to get hung up on these things because it's all a muddle. The figures yeah. don't add up. Just think of the petition the other day to make a cheeky petition, somebody organized to make England independent. And, and it was refused because Westminster said, no, we can't prove that we subsidize Scotland. Because I mean, all my life I've been here and hearing these things and they're being said about me and my children and my husband, and it's not yeah. true. So uh, personally, I equate Scottish independence with prosperity, fairness, and dignity. How did you feel that? It's very interesting. Thank you for that. How did you feel uh, when you heard the, the result of the Brexit vote? What did that make you feel? 
Uh, it made me feel terrible. It was a very depressing day. I remember that morning when Michael Gove and Boris Johnson appeared on TV. And I could see that they either had no plan or they had no idea that this was going to happen. That, you know, decades of propaganda and of hate-filled press were going to make a majority of people vote uh, for Brexit. So it was horrifying to see. But a few hours later, I had Nicola Sturgeon. And what she said, I will never forget, because she thanked us, EU citizens. And as I've told everyone, I have no axe to grind. I came here um, as a privileged person who could afford to come abroad. So it's, it's, I have, it's not that I have an axe to grind. I feel it as much as anybody else, you know, dentists, nurses, whatever, everyone that was here. Nicola Sturgeon told us that we were welcome, that she thanked us for choosing Scotland as our home and that she was going to do her very best to treat us with dignity and respect. Now, she tried her best, she did what she could. And if you went for instance onto the Portuguese embassy website, um, you have all the warnings, you know, in those days and in, in 2017 and onwards. Please make sure that you apply for pre-settled status. Make sure if you can, you apply for settled status because of this and that and that. And it was very scary and very disagreeable. But the Scottish government always had a little message there for us to say that if we needed any help uh, and they understood our distress, we could call this and that number. So that is another thing that attracted me enormously to the cause of Scotland and of Scotland inclusive, uh, Scotland's inclusive nationalism. Because I remember going to the supermarket uh, the day of the Brexit vote and I was looking around in my little town and thinking, did this lady vote to kick people like me out of the United Kingdom? Because basically, that's what it was. So to hear the prime minister of Scotland, I know it's the first minister, that's a legal title, saying something like that, it was bound to our souls. And I've spoken to so many EU citizens who felt so consoled uh, at that moment. And um, I mean, for instance, I said, I'm quite a bit of an Anglophile and I am, and the reasons are obvious. And, and, I'm very interested in history and my family has connections with, with uh, other countries, etc. And I was very proud of the Treaty of Windsor. When I got my British citizenship many years ago, I was so proud, you know, that I was a British citizen and a Portuguese citizen because the Treaty of Windsor is the oldest still working alliance between two nations, Portugal and England. And... Um, when Theresa May called us queue jumpers, that pride disappeared instantaneously because I felt so offended by that because people had come here on a reciprocal agreement that benefited us all. So it was very offensive to hear such things. And um, another thing is that uh, people are probably not aware, but many EU citizens have gone through a lot of suffering and anguish 
over this pre-settled status and said, I haven't because I had British citizenship for years. Uh, but they've gone over a lot of anguish over this. You know, yeah. if, for if, yes, if this had been me 25 years ago, when I had little children, I would have been petrified. You know, going on the embassy uh, page uh, at the end of whenever it happened uh, to see that uh, I had to justify being here. Um, yes. And I, I had to give all these, you know, because it's quite complicated, actually. And for a long time, things didn't work. It caused a tremendous amount of anguish to EU citizens. Yeah. And there's been incredible work done by associations like the Three Million in Limbo and many other prominent EU citizens and others, um, including many British people who have helped us um, to, to ameliorate things, but it caused a tremendous amount of suffering and, and it still does. It still I mean, does. It is, it, is, it is regrettable that there was so much propaganda uh, yes. which was focused on immigration, which was really a way of saying it's, it's a sort of nasty sense of exceptionalism. I mean, I, I I experienced I it personally. Yeah, I, I find it. I find it quite upsetting. I, it happened to me personally in the sense that uh, my daughter-in-law at that time, before they moved to Portugal, uh, lived in London, and uh, her neighbour uh, asked her uh, for some help, and she said, "What can I do?" And she said, "Well, we're having a problem uh, with the roof, and I, I'm not quite sure what to do. Uh, do you know of anyone who can come and help me?" Uh, and they were discussing how to spec the, the job. And this guy who was walking past, a complete stranger, heard my daughter-in-law's Polish accent, and he, he stopped. And he stood between the two of them, and he said to her, you know, if you're not going to learn to speak English properly, you should go. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Horrific. Yes. Well, with me, for instance, um, uh, when I was aware, more aware of everything was once, in, I don't know when it was, a few months after, my, my uh, younger daughter, Katrina, who, who lives and works in London uh, with her English husband, she, um, we were talking on the bus, we used to talk every day, and she was on the bus back from work talking to me, and we were speaking Portuguese because all my children are bilingual and bicultural, my three children, and uh, so we were speaking Portuguese, and she said, mum, in this climate, we better speak English. Because she didn't feel safe speaking Portuguese. Yeah. I mean, it's Brexit has revealed itself to be a, a narrowing of horizons. I see Scottish independence as a way to connect to other nations. I always did, even before, including England, who will be a very important part of this. And that's another thing, I think. Scottish independence will bring the UK closer to... Um, to other European nations, especially if you have have to have a hard land border. That's something to discuss then. But I think that will help, for instance. But on another point, uh, which I think is important, interesting for all the Scots, uh, all these years, most of these years, including even when the referendum happened in 2014, there was some publicity, people knew about it, and they started thinking in Portugal and Spain of the Uscusets the Scots. Um, so, and, and my family all knew about, because they all are very interested. They're great. They're all great Scottish independentistas for all the reasons. Um, but um, the it wasn't a general thing. 
now and for years now, you know, even the ladies looking after my mother ask me about Nicola Sturgeon. One of them the other day from the care home said, that lady's a saint. We see her um, she, every day. <laughs> every day she's out there dealing with all these questions. It's not that our politicians don't, but she has a stamina that people are aware of. Yeah. And, and people ask me about her. They call her the Primera Ministra. And that's not just Portugal, it's Spain as well. They, they know about her. They know about the Scots. And I no longer have to fight everyone to say, please don't say Ush English, the English. It's not that. It's Ush Escocias, the Scots. So uh, that has helped you to have an international profile. The, the fact that you've had an independence movement that now finally has got so many polls in favor of independence, people know your story, people know what's happened to you over the centuries. Uh, they, uh, everyone is literally rooting for Scotland. I mean, I don't want, and I know many people in Brussels, my daughter lives there, and I don't know anyone in Brussels uh, that is not rooting for Scotland. And I'm, you know, um, I'm friends with, people who know people. And I can tell you that uh, everyone is rooting for you. The last time I was in Portugal, the uh, luggage carrier at Lisbon airport, I had to ask him which way to go because we weren't in the usual place. And, and he said, oh, I'm sorry, but now you're in uh, door 40, gate 47 because the English with nothing to do with us anymore. And, and I said, well, it, there might, might have been a majority of the English, but there's lots of English who do. That's number one. And number two, there's the Scots, here's my husband, who voted by 62% to have lots to do with us. So hopefully this is just temporary. And he answered, but when is Scotland going to be independent? So this is, I mean, I've had this question from everyone, just about everyone I meet. It's no longer just my family asking me. It's, it's everyone. So, and, uh, you know, everyone knows your story now because you were camouflaged. You were under everything and, and, and uh, it submerged by the great, undoubtedly, English culture. I mean, I have a friend who is a no voter and he's a very, very good friend. I'm very fond of him. And the other day he was saying to me, he was going on to me about William Shakespeare. And I said, oh, I love Shakespeare. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, he's, he's one of the treasures of humanity. And, uh, and he was uh, associating himself uh, with Shakespeare, you know, as, as, a, as a cultural thing, as a native thing, something. And I said, what have you got to do with Shakespeare? Think of the century he was in. Think of what he is. I mean, you've got as much to do with Shakespeare as I do you have to do with someone just as wonderful, Robert Burns, and I with Luis de Camões, and all this can be separate and mixed at the same time. And that's the attractive thing about Scottish independence. It's the fact that you want cooperation and you can tell the world you are open for business and you can join the EU again if you want to. Or you can join a subgroup of the EU if you want to. The democratic checks are all there. 
I mean, when I see yeah. what the Tory government has done uh, lately, imposing things on Scotland and in other devolved nations, in the EU, the checks on all this are much greater. There is a democratic structure that people are not aware of because nobody ever told them. So yeah. I, 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 I think, that, I think we're, we're almost running out of time as well. I just want to take a couple of comments. Uh, your, your, your fan club has been very active. Okay. <laughs> Valerie Gold says, wonderfully absorbing and interesting interview. Thank Thanks you. to you both. <laughs> and Melanie McCain uh, has, um, has provided a comment, but mostly in Portuguese, and I wouldn't want to upset her by my very right. poor accent. George Aitken has said, I think we need another hour because I'm sure Joao has got a lot more to tell us. Uh, we don't have another hour, unfortunately. We've got two minutes, <laughs> which is very sad. Sorry, George, I feel the same, but we're, we're limited in time, I'm afraid. I wanted, uh, very importantly, for you to please give us the quote from Fernando Pessoa. Yes. Fernando. Did you do that? Yes, yes. It is one of our greatest poets of the 20th poets of the 20th century, Fernando Pessoa. And he uh, wrote a book in the 30s when we were under fascism to try and remind us of who we were and what we could do as a nation and, and our strengths, mm. our faults too, but our strengths and what small nations can do. And one of the most famous poems is Mar Português, Portuguese. And one line from it I've used before when addressing people on this question. And it is, Tudo vale a pena se a alma não é pequena. And I'll say it in Scots. I, please, all things worth it. Can you hear a soul that's muckle in you? All is worth it. Everything is worth it when your soul is big enough. Now, I've been here 43 years. And I know that Scotland's soul is more than big enough. There you are, folks. Now, that, that's, if, if that isn't the most inspiring thing you've heard in ages, then, frankly, you've had a better life than me. I, thank you very much, Joao. That's been excellent. Thank I did you. say to you that the hour would pass in a flash, and it pretty much does. Uh, it, clearly, people would like us to continue. Unfortunately, we can't. Our time is almost up. But I want to say a very big thank you. And I also want to give people a few uh, details about uh, next week, if I may. Uh, again, we've got some formidable guests lined up. Please join us next week because we have Stephen Gethins, who was an SNP MP uh, yeah. for uh, Fife. And he'll be talking, as Joao has done so eloquently tonight, about uh, international relations, why that's so important. And I'll be reminding him, if he needed any reminding, about the warm relationships that Joao has mentioned tonight. And it, it'll be your chance to put some questions or comments to Stephen next week at seven o'clock next Wednesday. Well, please, by the way, look out for my column in the, uh, the Sunday National at the weekend, the Constitution column in the, uh, the, the supplement. Please support Indie Live. And remember, go to the Indie Live website to find out what's on. Uh, you'll find it at www.whatsonguide.scot. Please go there. Uh, we've got the most 
wonderful array of programs, interviews. It's all there. You can get the timings. You can put questions like many people have done tonight. And thank you again. Join us next Wednesday. And remember, it's been a great day for British democracy. Joao, thank you very much again. Thank you for having me. Good night.